avoid flattery. Let's be a family because God is faithful. My name is Adam Lentz. I've uh, been here. I'm here today with my wife, Fiona. Maybe you can give them a wave of your hand. There she is. Great. And uh, we're uh, English teachers in the city. I teach primary school. Fiona teaches kindergarten. Yeah, so that's what we're doing in the country. And uh, what we're doing on earth is what every Christian is doing on earth, which is we're spreading the gospel and doing our best to uh, love each other. So um, I got called over here today. We usually go to church at RCBC, but today we're over here at our sister church, WSBC, and we're very, very happy to be here. In my culture, American culture, uh, there's an old fake story called a myth. Now myths aren't real, but they can be very fun to tell to other people. One myth that is one of my favorites is about a man called Sisyphus. And the version that I am about to tell you is changed a little bit by me for fun. In the story, Sisyphus angers the Greek gods, not the real god, the Greek gods, because he stole a lightning bolt and he hid it under their pillows. So the gods, the Greek gods, decided to punish Sisyphus. So the king god Zeus took Sisyphus to the bottom of a mountain and he showed him a giant stone and he says, to Sisyphus, you are free to leave when you have rolled this stone to the top of the mountain. So Sisyphus took the giant stone and he, with great difficulty, rolled it up the mountain. But just before Sisyphus reached the top of the mountain, Zeus put a spell on the stone and it slipped from Sisyphus's hands and it rolled back down the mountain and Sisyphus had to begin all over Again, so Sisyphus took the stone, and he rolled it, rolled it, rolled it, and he tried to get it back up to the top of the mountain, and just before he got to the top of the mountain, the stone slipped again. As Sisyphus began a third time to try to get the stone up the mountain, Zeus just walked away laughing. You see, the spell would never let Sisyphus complete his task, reach the top of the mountain, and earn his freedom. Sisyphus was trapped forever. And to this very day, Sisyphus is still trying to roll the giant stone up the mountain, but he will never succeed. He will never make a difference. And that's why, in my culture, Sisyphus is a symbol of vanity. No matter how hard he tries to reach the top of the mountain, his efforts are always in vain, and he can never succeed. And each time Sisyphus fails, his task resets and goes right back to the way it was. Sisyphus can never make a difference. So what about you? And what about me? Do you ever worry that your achievements won't last? Do you ever feel like you are not making the difference that you would like to make? When people feel like they aren't accomplishing anything, they can lose hope. And sometimes people quit or they start trying very hard and the world calls this burnout and depression. And this is dangerous at work. It's dangerous in every part of life, but it's most dangerous in our spiritual lives because our spiritual life is the part that carries on into eternity and has eternal ramifications. What if, for example, no one believes us when we share the gospel? Imagine you have a friend named Bill, and you meet with Bill every week for coffee and to 
read the Bible with Bill. And you, read, you meet with Bill for five years. And at the end of the five years, you're discouraged because he hasn't believed in Jesus. But then one day, he comes and he says, I believe. I believe in Jesus. And you're so excited. It goes on like that for about a year, and then you go and make a trip back to America for business, and you're gone. And you don't see Bill for a year. And you hope that Bill keeps believing. You come back a year later, back to Shanghai, and you find out that Bill says he's not a Christian anymore. He says, while you were gone, it got hard. I'm not a Christian anymore. And you think back on the seven years that you invested in Bill, and you think, what was the point? This was vain. I didn't make a difference. I'm like Sisyphus pushing that stone up the hill. It just rolled right back down to where it was. He never got saved. And when work doesn't make a difference, we call that vanity. Now, the Bible is very familiar with this concept. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. My friends, in a world where the normal course of events is vain and pointless, in a world where it's so hard to make a difference, how do we avoid becoming Sisyphus? We need, especially in our relationships at church, how should we spend our time? We need an example to show us what healthy Christian living and healthy Christian ministry look like. And today, the Apostle Paul is going to bring us three pieces of wisdom from God on how not to waste our time in ministry. So are you ready, my friends? Are you ready to learn how to treat one another while we wait for Christ to return? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to speak here at WSBC. Thank you for our sister church. I pray that what I say now would be your words and not mine. And I pray that what is heard would make a difference in the lives of all of us and that we would leave this place strengthened to love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's three pieces of wisdom from the Apostle Paul and the three points of our sermon are, number one, don't be flattering. Two, be a family. Three, because God is faithful. Let's start with point number one. I always find that's best. Don't be flattering. We're going to begin by reading our text today. If, you're, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, For you, know, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We're going to pause there for a second. Friends, let's start again with that, that first verse, verse 1, that phrase. He says, for you yourselves know. WSBC. Paul is not talking to them about something they heard about, read about, texted about, received a messenger pigeon about. No, Paul says, you yourselves know. Paul's explaining to them something that they had experienced. Pretend I'm Paul, just for a second, and I'm explaining COVID-19 lockdown to you. And before I even begin explaining how happy we were to order Why Am I at the end of the lockdown, I could say to you who lived through the lockdown, you yourselves know how grateful we were after so long inside to order Taco Bell. Oh my, firsthand experience is powerful. And one reason we can have great trust in Christ is that the Bible contains eyewitness 
accounts of Jesus in your own life, whenever possible, seek out firsthand experience of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the truths of Scripture. And the way that you can do this is apply the lessons from the Bible in your life each week and see with your own eyes the results of encountering God. That way you will be able to look at your fellow Christians and say, I myself know, just as you yourselves know. So that's the first phrase. Paul says in verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know brothers. W-S-B-C. He calls them brothers. Now I come from a big family. Mama Lentz had eight, count them, eight kids. But even my mother, Sylvia Lentz, did not give birth to an entire church. These are not Paul's physical brothers. He calls them brothers because they are his, his spiritual brothers. And why doesn't he say brothers and sisters then? Are there no girl believers in Thessalonica? No, there were girl Christians in Thessalonica, surely. There's two reasons why Paul may be doing this. Uh, reason number one is that he may be directly addressing the men as the leaders of the church, that's possible. Or he may just be using the male pronoun to refer to everybody. Either way, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine for all people. So this is an important lesson for all of us. Spiritual brothers are the family of Christ. Paul is the family of Christ. Physical brothers share parents. Spiritual brothers share a savior from guilt and death and evil desires and war with God. So my friends, remember that you have more family than your biological family. You have a spiritual family. And you have to love your spiritual family well. And so the way that you can apply this in your week is give them your time, give them your space, give them your energy. Christians are your family. So this passage is relevant for all Christians, no matter who Paul's speaking directly to, because the leaders of the church and the men of the church are examples for all of us. So Paul says in verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you, was not in vain. So WSBC. What Paul means is that the Thessalonians became Christians, and they grew stronger as a result of Paul's time with them. Has your mother ever told you to leave a room better than you found it? She, she, she just means clean it up, you know? Leave it better than you found it. Paul left the Thessalonians better than he found them. Christ told his apostles to go into all the world and to make disciples. And we have to do this too. So my friends, do your best to leave your friends and your family better than you found them. Teach them about Christ and all that he has done for you and for them. So he continues now in verse 2. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, pause, WSBC, Paul's time before Thessalonica, just before he arrived in the city, was in a Philippian jail. The Thessalonians knew that just before Paul had met them, he had been seized, accused, attacked by a crowd, beaten with rods, and locked up in stocks in jail. So remember, my friends, that Paul, one of the most productive and experienced Christians that God ever gave us, suffered greatly while doing good. Jesus himself experienced torture. So my friends, you must not be surprised if you have experienced suffering while serving God. Instead, like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, sing together for mutual encouragement. Verse 2 again, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. All right, so WSBC, Paul is saying that despite the hate that he endured at Philippi, he told the gospel to the Thessalonians confidently. Let me ask you, how would I preach to you if the last church that I had been at beat me with rods and locked me, with jail, locked me in jail? I might make myself sound like a mouse and look like an ant. I might make myself very small and very quiet. I'd be scared. But the bravery of Paul was in, excuse me, the bravery of Christ was in Paul. 
And he didn't become a mouse. He didn't become an ant. He didn't become quiet. He didn't become small. So my friends, the way that you can apply this is when you share the gospel, do it gently. But don't do it so gently that you undercut your message. Share the gospel with people with a confidence that helps people to understand that you really do believe the gospel and that they should too. Paul explains why he was confident in verses 3, 4, and 5. He says in verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. All right, so WSBC. Paul's gospel wasn't wrong. It wasn't dirty. It wasn't a lie. The Philippians treated Paul badly because they didn't believe his message. And the Philippians thought that Paul was like, like that old shepherd boy who lies about wolves over and over again, even though there are no wolves. And so the Philippians beat Paul. But like Christ, Paul was explaining a true and a pure and a healing message. And WSBC, this is your mission too. So you need to go out into the world and, like Paul, tell the truth. So Paul has explained what his message was not, and now he's going to explain what it is in verse 4. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, pause, what a beautiful idea. Imagine God. Imagine God examining Paul's heart. And he sees that Paul is spiritually alive and able to teach. Imagine God hands the gospel, the good news about Christ, the most precious possession any of us have to Paul to share with others. And now God, through Paul, has entrusted the gospel to me and to you. And the gospel, if you're wondering what that is, the gospel is just the good news that though each of us have failed, to be perfect enough to be friends with God, that Jesus has paid for our sins and he's lived righteously for us. So that if we only trust in Christ for salvation, we can be friends with God. We can be gradually transformed in our character by the Holy Spirit. We can physically rise from the dead after we die. We can enjoy the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns as king. And so, my friends, you must tell everybody about this good news. All 30 million of these people are neighbors in Shanghai. And we must go on trusting in the gospel ourselves for salvation. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, you haven't trusted in the gospel yet, you must repent of your sins and you must trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. So Paul finishes his explanation for sounding bold instead of sounding cowardly with the last phrase in verse 4. He says, So we speak, not to please a man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. WSBC, the people in Philippi were certainly not pleased at first by Paul. And Paul, being a reasonable man, might have assumed that the Thessalonians might not react well either. But though Paul surely wanted the Thessalonians to like him, he wasn't mean, he wasn't unkind, though he surely wanted them to like him, he didn't focus on making the Thessalonians happy because he cared more about making God happy. Paul was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar when God saved them from the fiery furnace or not. At that point, they didn't even know. Paul was like them because he cared more about God's approval than man's approval. Jesus himself said, he said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So my friends, when you are scared to share the gospel, and we all get scared sometimes, focus on fearing God instead of on fearing man. Now, how did pleasing God more than pleasing men change the way that Paul spoke to the Thessalonians? Good question. Verse 5, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. So WSBC, flying is just lying compliments or deceitful praise. 
Paul didn't try to trick the Thessalonians into liking him by lying to them about how great the Thessalonians were. I heard a joke uh, about a muscular bodybuilder, a guy who works on his, his arms all day. And his arms, his muscles, had grown so big and so strong that he was now unable to touch his shoulders because the biceps were so big and in the way. So weird. The muscular bodybuilder asks his friend, he says, are my muscles cool? And the friend, of course, lies and flatters, and he says, yes, of course, please don't kill me. Jesus commanded us to go and confront one another with hard truths. We can't be like the flattering friend of the bodybuilder. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so, my friends, we have to, bold, if we're going to obey Jesus, we have to go boldly into the world and we have to tell the truth. We can't flatter and lie to people to tell them that things about themselves that aren't true. We have to be honest. And so Paul didn't flatter. Verses 5 and 6 say, explain, he says, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. WSBC, Paul wasn't, he wasn't trying to get rich. He wasn't trying to get famous by sharing the gospel. Paul was more like, like a doctor who has a huge salary, but is secretly giving away all of the money and donating it to fight cancer. He's just fighting against disease, not to get rich, but just because he wants to help people. Paul's service to the Thessalonians wasn't for buying boats, it wasn't for buying cars, it wasn't buying airplanes, it wasn't for fun. Listen to how Jesus hated using ministry for greed. John chapter 12, verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned the tables. And he, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So, my friends, unless we want Jesus to whip us, we need to stop pretending to be great people. We need to stop trying to deceive others into giving us respect or money or power or whatever it is that we're hoping to trick people out of. Instead, we should be confessing sin to one another so that we can stay humble. By admitting our weaknesses to one another, we can stop people from thinking that we're better than we really are. And so you and I and everybody needs to find a Christian friend and get honest with them about your desire to be wealthy, your need for attention, or whatever sinful issue that you are struggling with or that I'm struggling with. So Paul says in verse 6, he didn't chase glory from the Thessalonians, and he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, WSBC, even though Paul had a genuinely glorious position, the man was an apostle. He didn't insist or force the Thessalonians to treat him like he was special. Imagine a king, maybe the most important king in the world, ruler of enormous amounts of land. And he comes into the room where his children are playing. This is a good father. He doesn't insist, I'm the king, two-year-old. Why don't you stand up and bow down to me when I walk in the room? I'm your father. He is not like that. This is a good father. A good king, a good father, would come into the room, and he wouldn't insist that his children bow. He would just sit down, and he would start playing with them and spend time with them. Paul was like this. Paul treated the Thessalonians like the spiritually immature people that they were. Jesus was also like this. Jesus was gentle. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy which said, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so, my friends, like Paul and like Christ, you and I need to go out among our Gentile friends and we need to gently explain the gospel in a gentle way that doesn't insist that people treat you like the priests and princes of God that you actually are. And so, my friends, to summarize verses 1 through 6, don't flatter. Don't lie to people to protect yourself from rejection. Don't lie to people to get money or glory. Instead, gently but boldly, tell people the truth. Don't flatter. So we've seen what we shouldn't do. Don't flatter. Now we're going to see what we should do. It's time for point two. Be a family. Let's start in verse 7. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. WSBC. Paul says to slowly, kindly, explain the good news about Jesus with unbelievers patiently, carefully, encouragingly, and perhaps most importantly, humbly. You can't teach a baby how good milk is by throwing a baby into a bucket of milk. You can't teach an unbeliever how good the gospel is by harshly yelling at an unbeliever in a terrible tone of voice. Just like you have to make yourself the servant of the baby and do whatever it wants. You make yourself the servant of the unbeliever, not by doing anything that, it want, that they want, but by being kind and being gentle and not insisting on your rights when you're with them. Jesus was gentle, and he told us to be the same. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through... Uh, I'm actually not sure what the reference is, but Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My friends, meek means gentle. And so if we want to inherit the earth, and I assume you do, we need to humbly, patiently, slowly, and cheerfully explain the gospel to people who are new to Christianity so that we don't humiliate them or scare them away. Now, why was Paul making himself the servant of the Thessalonians? He tells us in verse 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So WSBC, Paul served the Thessalonians with the gospel, his spirit, and his body, because he liked them. And he wanted the Thessalonians to become Christians. People are more likely to believe you about the gospel He's, they're more likely to believe that you care about their spirit if you also care for their needs for food, shelter, water, money, jobs, exercise, friendships, etc. Imagine you or I get done with explaining the gospel to a guy for an hour. Maybe it's Bill again. And then he raises his hand with a question. I make my friends raise their hand. And he says, I understand that Jesus loves me and he wants to forgive me of my sin. But Adam, why do you ignore my texts? You never want to get coffee with me, Adam. Adam, if Jesus loves me, why don't you? Jesus taught that God cares about all of our needs, not just the physical. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 says, he says, Jesus said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. WSBC, if God is caring for the non-spiritual needs of the world, shouldn't we do the same? Of course, and I didn't want to make this clear, our first priority is the gospel. It does a man very little good to be kind to him for 10 years, and then the man dies and goes to hell, and you never explain the gospel to him. 
our first priority is to share the gospel. If you can do only that, do that. But that's a pretty rare situation. Most of us live in community with the people that we're sharing the gospel with. And it would be weird and strange and hurt our gospel witness if we were not kind. So like Paul, we have to care for the entire man or the entire woman, including their desire for friendship. We must share ourselves, not just the gospel. How did Paul share all of himself with the Thessalonians? How did he do this precisely? Verse 9 says, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. WSBC, while Paul was with these people, he earned a living. He worked a job. He was like a child who plays piano morning, noon, and night. And the reason that they're always working on the goal is that they genuinely love it. So Paul was working morning, noon, and night. Even when he wasn't directly sharing the gospel with people, he was working so as not to be a burden to them so that it would be an effective gospel presentation because he loved them. Like that child who plays piano morning, noon, and night. His heart was in it. Like Jesus. Jesus worked as a carpenter. Paul didn't insist on people treating him like a special person who was above manual labor. And so, my friends, you and I must humbly do whatever people need us to do so that our humble character helps people to understand that the gospel is good. And so the way we can apply this is work hard at your job. Help others physically whenever you can. And don't turn, don't turn down tasks because they're beneath you. Paul was hardworking. But this was just a piece of this character. Paul describes himself more in verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. WSBC, Paul was loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled with the Thessalonians. He was not sexually immoral, impure, sensual, idolatrous, sorcerous, contentious, jealous, angry, rivalrous, dissenting, divisive, or envious. You can't fight fire with fire. You can't fight sin with sin. Jesus commanded us to abide in him so that we can bear much fruit. And so, my friends, we have to find our pleasure in Christ. We can't find our pleasure in the pleasure that sin gives. And, the way, and we have to do this so that people will know that we're Christians. So, my friends, read your Bibles. Give yourselves to God in prayer. Watch one another's Christian lives. Not so that that will so that that will transform you into being holy. So that's not necessarily holiness itself, though it's the beginning of holiness. That will transform you into being holy people so that you will delight in God and be changed by grace to become holy so that others will see and love the holiness in you and become Christians so that they can be like our holy God too. And so while Paul was busy with his holy living and his hard working, did he speak with words to ask the Thessalonians to get saved and to grow up into strong Christians? Let's find out in verse 11. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. WSBC, Paul was not silent as he worked or quiet while he behaved righteously. He spoke to the Thessalonians about God and he asked them to get saved and to grow into mature Christians. Paul was not like some of these guys who take out a girl on 600 dates, write them love songs, buy them flowers, go on dates for another 10 years, but then never pops the question and asks her to get married. Paul was not like that. Paul asked the Thessalonians, get saved. He used words, not just actions, to call the Thessalonians to join him in holy living. 
And Jesus, too, called us with words to join him in holy living. It says in Matthew chapter 7, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, my friends, like Paul, who used words to call us to be holy, and like Jesus, who used words to call us to be holy, let's use words to call others to be holy. Not just with their lives, but also with their actions. We've got to pop the question at some point. Please get saved. So WSBC, point one was don't flatter. Point number two was be a family. You see how Paul was like a family member to these people with the hard working and the holy living and the gentle behavior? Now it's time for point three. Point three. Let me go through the points again. Point one, don't flatter. Point two, be a family. Point three, because God is faithful. Let's start in verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. All right, so WSBC. Paul praised God for causing the Thessalonians to look past Paul and see God. Paul was like a telescope. And the Thessalonians were looking through the telescope, the telescope of Paul, and they were looking out at the planet or the world of God. This is the analogy. And so they didn't worship Paul the telescope for the beautiful light. Neither did they consider the telescope itself to be unimportant because Paul's a silly little telescope. They Thessalonians thought this light coming through Paul the telescope is important because it comes from God. Jesus also brought us glory from God in the form of a man. Many people couldn't understand that he was God and that Jesus' message was not his own invention. Jesus said he did not speak on his own initiative. So my friends, Speak God's words, and when people receive them as not your words, but as God's words, then we can rejoice like Paul rejoiced. So how did Paul know that the Thessalonians were receiving the gospel of God as God's words instead of as man's words? He says in verse 14, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So WSBC, simply speaking, the Thessalonians began to act like Christians that Paul had met already. Paul knew, if I buy a tree and it begins to produce apples, it's an apple tree because I've seen apples on trees before and those were apple trees. So Paul could tell that the Thessalonians were becoming Christians because they were acting like the Christians that he had seen before. Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So my friends, when you are evaluating the results of your ministry, when you see new Christians begin to act like older Christians that you've met, praise God like Paul. That's how you know that you're making a difference. But how were the Thessalonians acting like the Jews? Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So WSBC, Paul saying that the Thessalonians' unbelieving Gentile neighbors were harsh to the Thessalonians, like the unbelieving Jewish neighbors of the Jewish Christians were harsh to them. Paul can praise God because, in part, because he allowed the Thessalonians to suffer, in part, to give the Thessalonians an opportunity to show how sincerely they believed in Jesus. Have you heard how diamonds cut glass, right? Because the diamond is harder than the glass that it's cutting. Imagine I sell diamonds, but you don't believe that my diamonds are real. It's okay, we just met. But then I bring out my diamond, 
and I make it suffer by dragging it through a giant sheet of glass. And when I'm finished, my diamond is covered with dust and shards of glass. But when I clean my diamond and I reveal that it's unharmed, you can see that though because my diamond went through the suffering of cutting through the piece of glass, that it really was a diamond. And its glory is revealed to your eyes because of the suffering. Well, Jesus also suffered in order to prove his value. Paul says that the unbelieving Jews in verse 15 uh, of the other chapter that I'm referencing, oh, excuse me, verse 15 of, yes, of this current chapter, verse of uh, Thessalonians, killed the Lord, in verse 15, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So WSBC, when the new Christians who you love experience hardship because they are Christians, know that the suffering is a test from God. And if your new Christians continue to believe in God, then you will have cause for great joy. So don't be surprised by trials. Instead, encourage the new Christians to persevere in the face of the hardship, because when they finish getting through that glass, they're going to be recognized as the diamonds that they are. But this doesn't mean that the trials that new Christians face are good in and of themselves. No, Paul says that the unbelieving Jews in verse 15 displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. WSBC, Paul believed that these trials, though used by God, were genuinely ugly to God and destructive to humanity. By becoming the friend of God, you are becoming the friend of humanity. Bullying new Christians is a declaration of war, not just on Christians, but on the world. Because Christians are saving the world by sharing the good news about Jesus called the gospel. Imagine I hate a man, and so I get on a boat with the man I hate, even though there's a crowd of other people on the boat, and I light the boat on fire. It's true I'm attacking the person that I hate, but I'm also attacking many, 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 many other people. This is what attacking Christians is like. It's like indiscriminately setting a boat on fire. Jesus said, he said, I am the light of the world. WSBC, attacking Jesus and attacking new Christians leaves the world a darker place. And so, my friends, if you're trying to make a difference in life, help unbelievers become Christians, be the servant of the new Christians to help them become strong in the faith, and by working to help unbelievers and young Christians, you're going to make the world a brighter place. If it is so bad to attack Christians, then why did God allow the Thessalonians to be opposed? Paul says God allowed this to happen in verse 16. He says, So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. So WSBC, Paul says that God allowed the Thessalonians to be opposed by unbelievers because unbelievers must be allowed to do the amount of sin that God has destined them to sin. You see, God is in control of all sin. He's God. He's in control of everything. If he wasn't in control of everything, we would need a new word for him. He wouldn't be God, not as we understand God. There is an amount of sin that God has decided to use to accomplish his good purposes. I'll say that again. There is an amount of sin that God has decided to use to accomplish his good purposes. But God is completely in control of all actions in the world, including the sinful ones. Sin is like a bull charging at God with its horns lowered. And God knows exactly how close he will let the bull get to him and to his beloved Christians before he steps aside and the bull goes past, leaving his purposes unharmed and unchanged. One reason that God is allowing sin to happen 
is so that we will see how powerful, how precise, and how confident God is to let unbelievers attack Christians without being able to destroy the faith of those Christians. Jesus' suffering on the cross also teaches us that God is completely in control of sin. John chapter 19 says, But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, this is when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Do you see, WSBC, God decided exactly which body parts he would allow the unbelievers to break in Jesus. God's so in control of sin he decided exactly which bones he would let them break in Jesus. He decided none. When, so we should know that God is only allowing unbelievers to be hateful to new Christians because he has decided in advance how much sin he is going to allow for his good and perfect and righteous and holy purposes. And so, my friends, please encourage the new Christians that when hard things happen in their lives, nothing strange is happening. God is not confused and he's not lost control. He's in control. All hardship is from God and used for good. But when is all the testing going to end? When will God finish revealing his glory through the sinful actions of mankind and restore the world to its original perfection, a day we all long for, especially in times of suffering. Paul says in the last part of verse 16, he says, but wrath has come upon them all at last. Now, WSBC, this is a confusing phrase. There's a few things that are difficult to understand. Thing number one, how's the wrath coming? Is the wrath a reference to Jerusalem's imminent destruction at the hands of the Romans? That's possible. Is it a reference to Jesus' imminent return to rule over the world as king with a rod of iron? How's the wrath coming? Number two, what does it last mean? Does it mean that the wrath has already happened? Does it mean that the wrath is the last wrath that will ever happen? Does it mean that the wrath has been due for a long time, but now it's finally about to happen? These are my questions. How is the wrath coming, and what does it last mean? But here's what's clear. Number one, the wrath is under God's control. Whether it's the Romans attacking Jerusalem or Jesus returning to rule as king, everything that happens, happens because of God's plan. He's God. Though God causes and uses the sin of mankind, he never approves of sin. So the wrath is under God's control, even if it's not God's personal wrath. That's thing number one that's clear. The wrath is under God's control. Number two, the second thing that's clear is that we should feel like the wrath is right about to happen at any moment. God had been pouring out wrath on sin since Adam's work in the soil. Not this Adam, the original. Eve's pain in childbirth and the snake's belly. That was all wrath from God. We see God bringing wrath on sin happening all the time. Also, we always have to be ready for Jesus to return on a day that we do not expect. Jesus said, he said, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so WSBC... Since the wrath of God is both begun and just about to happen, you can comfort new Christians, and you can tell them that their suffering is only going to last a little while. So encourage young Christians and tell them to keep believing and trusting in Jesus, no matter what happens. Unbelievers know, unbelievers who are here today, please know 
the wrath of God is about to happen, and it has already begun. Now is the time, then, for you to believe the good news about Jesus and be saved out of the wrath of God that's coming. And any of the Christians here would love to talk to you and share more about the gospel. And so, my friends, as we think back on our three points and we consider the mighty stone of ministry that each of us is pushing up the hill, up the mountain of life, let's remember these three things to help us reach the top and leave a permanent legacy. Number one, don't flatter people. You don't need to lie to them. You don't need to compliment them with things that are untrue in order to get them to believe in Jesus or to get rich. That's not what ministry is about. Don't flatter people. Number two, be a family. Be kind, be gentle, work hard, treat each other humbly. Number one, don't flatter. Number two, be a family. Number three, because God is faithful, he's coming right back. He is the one that makes the first two points work. And there's no guarantee that even if we don't flatter and even if we are a family to other people, there's no guarantee that God will choose to save him or that that will guarantee results. But if we avoid flattery and if we treat unbelievers like, we, if we treat new Christians like family, then we should prayerfully wait for God to work because God is faithful. We can trust him. He is coming back soon, and he's using all the hardship that young and old Christians go through for good reasons. He disapproves of sin. He's given us his word in the mouths of simple men and women like us so we can avoid the vanity and pointlessness of our ideas about spreading the gospel. We can avoid being Sisyphus, trapped on an endless mountain with nothing to show for our work. If we want to leave behind in this mighty, mighty city of Shanghai, strong, tough Thessalonian believers, then let's avoid flattery. Let's be a family because God is faithful. Praise God for his faithfulness.